But first, uh, Fraser Health continues to struggle, even as case rates fall across the rest of BC. The BC CDC data we saw Friday shows that parts of northwest Surrey, including Wally and Newton, had an average of 40 cases a day for every 100,000 people. This is actually more than double the rate of most of the areas in Metro Vancouver. In Vancouver, even more concerning is those neighborhoods had a lower than average rate to vaccination rate. So those communities are have a large South Asian population. Uh, so we're going to be asking, you know, what are those unique challenges in, in targeting these populations and what needs to be done better? Joining me to discuss this is Jesse Sunner. Jesse is a labor lawyer and member of the South Asian COVID Task Force. Jesse, welcome to the show. Good morning, George. Thank you for having me. So what are your thoughts on this, this specific area and the challenges that it's facing in the hotspots? So as we know, um, there are a lot of essential workers that are in Surrey. So a lot of the typical vaccination clinics might not meet the needs of the community. And with a lot of the things that were happening previously with pop-up clinics, things like that, you're not able to meet the needs of the community because they're not individuals that can just, you know, see something on Twitter or they can't just take four hours off of work to go stand in the lineup. So we really need to address the needs that they have and reach them in the community that they're in in order to have them vaccinated or you know know that they can get vaccinated. Groups for months have been calling for um, you know there to there to be information collected about the pandemic and how it's affecting these racial minority groups. Um, uh, this has not been done in the level that they would they've been asking for. Uh, do you agree with these groups that this information should be collected and shared? I think it's really important data to have. Um, it's It really lays the basis of understanding a lot of the inequities that are faced by minority groups and what are the challenges and how do we specifically address them. If we don't see the issue, then it's hard to address the issue, right? So we do need that data and it does need to be collected. And as we can see from the data that's come out, um, it's important to make change in how we are addressing the needs of these communities. And how would it help uh, the situation? We also know that there's potentially different approaches and, and you know, their, their impact or the way they use the healthcare system might be different or, uh, you know, inequalities on income and all those other things. How would it actually help situation in, in those communities? So it would help in these communities to see how are they getting their information? You know, where are they going? Where are they able to have access to vaccination? So there's a lot of different issues that arise with it. So one of them may be an accessibility issue. They might not be able to get to the mass vaccination clinics. So for example, there may be a large elderly population. There may be a large population that doesn't have readily available access to vehicles to make it to a vaccine clinic that's maybe 15, 20 minutes away from them. So really in seeing that, we can see, okay, how do we do, um, how do we outreach to them? How do we get to them and reach them in a place where it's already maybe a part of their daily or weekly routines so that they can get that information to get vaccinated? Does it surprise you that this that they haven't targeted these communities and, and focused on them prior to this? There was a, certainly a priority. First Nations across BC received vaccines much quicker. It was very targeted, very specific. And then we had, of course, the age-based process, which we started out and we're still kind of in that, but now we're kind of expanding it. Um, why not? Why not use the data that potentially they can collect to, to use the same specific approach to dealing with the COVID crisis um, in the South Asian community and certainly in the in the geographic area of, of uh, Surrey? Yeah, I, you know, I think there is probably a lot of different techniques that they're trying and they didn't do that at the beginning. But all we can look at now is how do we do that now and how can we make sure that 
now that there is a greater vaccine vaccination um, rollout and we have the vaccines, how do we reach these people? And I think that we're we're looking at that. They're looking at that now, and we want to assist as best that we can. And we've tried to provide as much input on that as well. And um, you know, we were at we had volunteers at the last outreach clinic that happened on Friday, and we're able to take some lessons from that on how to reach more people um, where they are in their communities. That's a communications thing, really. Though, how mm-hmm. how do you communicate differently? Uh, to a community, um, and when you're specific like that, is there what techniques is it related to the faith that they might be following, or languages based? Should we be doing mm-hmm. much more language based marketing and communications and and that that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. So one thing that's really important is that communication piece on language. If you want somebody to give you informed consent on the vaccination process, or want to register, want to book, they have to be reached in a a language that they speak and that they feel comfortable in and they feel comfortable to ask questions in and get the answers that they need. So by providing that, whether it's through traditional media, through ethnic media, through um, reaching out to them, and I think that's where this communication piece has been a little bit more even um, micro on the level is by reaching out to them through outreach clinics, for example, at faith-based organizations, you're reaching them through people that are they trust. Through, you know, m- many of these communities have faith-based organizations where the congregations have been going there for years. And when they get that information from that organization, they're more likely first to receive the information because we take for granted that mainstream media is accessible to everyone or that's where everybody is using. But also to see that, okay, my com- it is, you know, it's coming into my community. These questions that I have, other people have, they've been answered. And yeah, I do want to get vaccinated. And and oh look, it's also in my community where it's accessible to me, so it makes it easier for me to do so. Do you think that so there is there's a sort of light at the end of the tunnel right now, and we're seeing the numbers with the vaccinations overall going up. We see hope that maybe we can get through this pandemic soon. Um, mm-hmm. But in the future, for potentially policymakers or anything that we could be doing related to you know ethnic populations and certainly specific geogra- geographical areas or things like that, is there anything that the pr- province should be thinking about uh, to revise to do this better if this ever should happen again or on any other issues that relate to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think collecting that data is very, very important. And I think having the right stakeholders in the room that can give you the information you need about these communities is very important. So, you know, it took a while to understand maybe why the vaccination rates were low. So understanding, you know, there's a very high essential worker population in Surrey. There are right. joint commun- uh, joint families that live in Surrey. They don't have the ability to just, you know, isolate from, some, um, from their entire family. There's caregiving um, obligations. So understanding all those underlying things we you know this is an opportunity to continue this dialogue and keep it open we shouldn't just be taking this information and closing the door on it until the next um medical you know issue arises we should be using this um to see how we can continue to best reach these communities for even post-pandemic regular medical information how to get things out to them um in a manner that you know it doesn't have to be just the mainstream way that we've done it and we should make these ways are also can become mainstream and we need to make sure that's the way to reach everybody. That's uh, very helpful and I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me, George. Thanks. George Afflickin for uh, Mike Smith today. Uh, we are talking about uh, the Fraser Health uh, from this segment. Uh, and in particular, Surrey, the region of BC has been hardest hit by COVID-19. Our next guest has seen it 
in her work as a teacher. She wrote an open letter to Dr. Barney Henry about the challenges in Northwest Surrey. Lizanne Foster is an English and social studies teacher based in Surrey, and she joins me now. Hello, Lizanne. Hello, George. How are you today? Very good, thank you. This is a, a really powerful letter, and if anybody has a chance to read it, it's posted uh, in various places. And uh, before before the break, we heard some of the challenges that the Fraser Health has heard related to COVID data, related to, you know, uh, you know the issues of faith and, and how you communicate in parts of Surrey. Tell me what your letter spells out. Well, you know, when people look at statistics and data, it, you know, your mind can just kind of like, you know, think it can be very um, abstract. And what I was specifically trying to show is that um, these are people and they have difficult lives and they're not just, you know, statistics. Um, it, it's, um, it's really important that people realize, you know, people are not just going and saying, oh, yay, let me just go and get, you know, COVID and I don't care. They are, they've got lots of things in their lives that they need to get done. They, you know, need to take care of their kids. They many of them don't have paid sick leave. So the kinds of options that people might have in, you know, a more affluent part of town are not, or, or, or Metro Vancouver, are not available to them. So diversities of income, there might be assumptions that people make about a certain community uh, mm-hmm. that might be wrong. And so you're a teacher, you're out there, you're in there every day experiencing mm-hmm. a diverse community. So how, how do you, what do you see on the ground when you're in at school? Well, you know, one of the um, one of the kind of most mind blowing things is that in my classroom I can have uh, two students sitting next to each other, and one of them, you know, has a sixty thousand dollar car parked in the school parking lot, and the one sitting right over doesn't have a bed, you know, and might rely on the school food program, and we we have a, an extremely diverse. Um, Student population, and um, with with the you know with the pandemic teaching right now, if we when we have online classes when students have to do online work, one of those students can go home and they've got a room where they've got their personal computer, they've got a you know everything that they need, and another shares the device with eleven other people in their home, and there is no quiet space. And right? so, the, yeah. so it's really difficult. Yeah, it sounds and and the information they're getting may not be they may not be getting communicated to the same way as other students who have the access to all those uh, devices for sure. Well, all kids do have phones, mm-hmm. but um, the phones might not have a data plan, and also the phones might just be a plan that you know a phone that they can use during school hours. But then when they go home, it's got to go to somebody else who might have to go to work. You know, there's um, there's all kinds of things that maybe people who live in you know in other parts of the city would never think that that anybody would have to deal with you know with an issue like this. One of the concerns that has been raised and related to the race-based data collection is is how communicating it might be risky or it might be considered uh, racist or mm-hmm. you know that it would be a negative. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think of collecting that data and sharing that data and how that will help? Well, you know, resisting collecting race-based data is like saying we don't see color. Clearly, for as long as racism exists within our structures and everywhere, if we are serious about tackling racism, we need to see racism. And we need to see how things like pandemics unevenly impact people. So, you know, hiding race 
uh, race-based data is a form of perpetuating racism because you can only fix what you can see. You can only fix what you can acknowledge. And if you're not acknowledging, you can't fix it. So it's almost like political correctness is doing the opposite of what it, you know, is supposed to do, which is solve a problem. Yeah. As, as exactly, exactly. There, there has been more nuanced, nuanced data that's been released about schools. Uh, this is, you, you think this is a good thing, this data then, obviously, that's been released recently? Well, more information is always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> if we have more information, we can make better decisions. And, you know, the, 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 the Fraser Health document released um, last night um, shows that what, we are, what we, teachers have been saying, that there are clusters in schools, that there are student-to-student transmission, that has actually been happening, and that data has been collected, and they know it's happening. So it's kind of like, you know, this is the perpetual um, kind of problem that we teachers have. Mm-hmm. We're in the school, we see the reality of what's happening in the classrooms, and then we watch on the media and we're told, no, schools are safe, and no, there's enough funding, and everything is enough, and, you know, everything is fine. It, it's very, it's weird. It's like living in a kind of like a surreal reality where what your lived experience is is not what's coming out of the mouths of politicians on TV. So now that some of that data is available and uh, that you have, how will you use it either in the school or potentially to communicate back to the province? Well, I'm hoping that, you know, school leadership at different levels um, sees the data and then, um, you know, does something with it, especially the Ministry of Education have been telling us since September that they defer to the, to the public health and to the, the, the Ministry of Health. Well, clearly, here is some information from Fraser Health that c- could be of use to the Ministry of Education to make uh, d- decisions about what to do with schools in Surrey. We have been calling for schools in the, that hotspot area to go to lower density. We need to have fewer students in the classroom. Last June, all of us in all the schools in Surrey had to work out a plan for lower density, for 50% density, for 20% density. We had all those plans worked out. And then on the 29th of July, we were just told, no, none of that stuff matters. Now here's the plan. Here's this five-stage plan. So we thought, okay, so now they have a five-stage plan. And so when things go bad, we will go to another stage. But we've been stuck in stage two, regardless of where cases are 1,200 or at 500 or at 300. It, you know, it makes no sense. So one would think that now, now that you've got granular data on they clusters can... and on outbreaks and student-to-student transmission, that that's enough for the Ministry of Education to actually move mm. from stage two to stage three and then provide supports because the, the people in this area of northwest um, Surrey would need things like mobile hotspots. You know, you have yeah. to do something like what we... they did in the States is a mobile hotspot and yeah. then provide those students with laptops. Lizanne, we've got to get going, but uh, that is really helpful and I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Lizanne. George Afflickin for Mike Smith today. Happy Tuesday morning to everyone. We heard a bit about the uh, announcement, what the province will be doing regarding sick days, three days, sick days, 200 200 bucks per day that will be paid by the province uh, for the remainder of the 
year, it sounds like, while we go through the pandemic. And then after that, they'll be introducing legislation in the new year and be consulting with the business and overall community. Uh, we'll be talking about, we'll be going live to the premier after the uh, 11 o'clock news. Uh, and then we'll be following that with a conversation about the impact that uh, these decisions might have on business, positive and negative. But first, this weekend, the mayor of, Co- of Coquitlam shared a deeply personal story on the intersection of policing and mental health health crisis in his own life. He joins us now to tell his story. Mayor Richard Stewart, mayor of Coquitlam, is here with me. Hello, Mayor Stewart. Good day, George. So, you know, when you shared uh, your post on Facebook, it hit a little close to home to me, to be honest, but I'm not sure if I'd be willing to share my details with my kid. And, and, uh, you know, can you tell me, you know, what you wrote and why you wrote it? Well, our daughter has always been very public with her mental health challenges. That was about seven or eight years ago when it uh, came to a head. She ended up hospitalized uh, a number of times uh, for uh, acute mental health uh, issues. Uh, She's better now. But um, there was one of those episodes where currently we're in discussion with Fraser Health about how we respond as a health, uh, to a health call about mental health. And... um, and so I simply recounted uh, something that happened uh, back in 2015. Uh, we called 911 for uh, an ambulance. Our daughter was in an acute anxiety attack, uh, enormous panic, and uh, had barricaded herself in her room. And, and we were trying, you know, we, we were at our wits end. We couldn't. Uh, so we called 911. Um, uh, the door, uh, we opened the door, and it was police. Not the not the ambulance. Um, we let them in. I expected. I kind of expected that, but it was still a shock because it's something I've been fighting for many years. That that's what we do with mental health calls. You call nine one one for for mental health emergency, and the it gets routed to police. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police. Yeah, one of the officers managed to took 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 his time, de-escalated, uh, managed to get the situation under control and got her seated in the living room where we were able to make a decision about how to get to the hospital. Uh, they offered her a choice of ambulance or apprehension under Section 28, which is a handcuffs in the back of, back seat of a police car as and use that as the ambulance. So it really, it, it, I was simply using the example mm-hmm. because we, we hear so many times about what happens when the police get involved in a mental health call and go sideways. Yeah, and, and, and I think that for for anybody who's a parent who's dealing with kids uh, in these situations and if it escalates and you feel like you're somewhat out of control, that like you haven't got, you know, there. I have three kids and, and each one of them has, you know, I've raised them the, the same way I thought, and they, but each kid responds in different ways to everything. And we have a kid with uh, mental health challenges, it, it extrapolates and makes things much more difficult, obviously. But the policing stuff, so the response, what's the response you've received on this uh, this post? The police are very thankful for the post. Uh, they don't. They don't want to go to the call either. Right. They they know that uh, showing up on someone's at someone's home or at someone's place of work for a mental health call, wearing a bulletproof vest, a uh, gun on one side, a taser on the other side, um, looking very military, looking very um, uh, aggressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's hard uh, for police to do to to do their job and also step into the role of mental health uh, social worker effectively. Um, so we also got all kinds of comments from other parents. Um, one, the parent of a nine-year-old whose, her nine-year-old was handcuffed. 
um, because that's protocol. And um, we we really want. So Coquitlam had been asking Fraser Health for a, another solution. Uh, it's not perfect, but the car eighty seven in Vancouver, car sixty seven in Surrey, car eighty in uh, or forty in Kamloops. I mean, it, various jurisdictions do it differently, but it's a police officer and a mental health worker mm-hmm. or a, a psychiatric nurse in a in a unmarked police vehicle um, to do the same role, but nonetheless uh, to do it with medical services available right there rather than. Um, Use the police as a as an untrained paramedic to drive the mental health patient to the hospital in the back of a police car. And you're asking that this then be something that may be mandated in every jurisdiction or something like that. Well, I, ideally, I'd love to see you know something like BC Ambulance have a mental health side to it, which is psychiatric nurses, uh, perhaps combined with. Uh, law enforcement in order to manage the realities of the the risks associated with some types of mental health calls, um, and then it would be region wide or province wide, and you you wouldn't have each municipality. For for example, in Surrey, it's not available twenty four seven because you can't resource a, a vehicle like that round the clock. Um, Vancouver, a recent article by CBC said that. It can be a three-day wait to get car 87 to a to a mental health call if it's busy um, or if it's not when the car is on shift. So it really, this isn't the way we ought to set up a system as transportation for a health-related emergency, transportation to the hospital. Um, all other health-related emergencies are, and there's an ambulance system uh, with mental health. We use the back of a police car uh, right next to this really big, uh, high-powered weapon, uh, you know, with, and the paramedics are are are, are police officers. And You're the mayor of, of of Coquitlam, and do you have? Is there anything at your disposal that you can do uh, to push this forward, or is it because it's you're thinking ambulance, so it's provincial? Where where, where do we go from here? Well, our request was to Fraser Health Authority. Um, they have funded for 20 years the CAR 67 in Surrey, which isn't a panacea, but it at least has a mental health worker, a, a psychiatric nurse, on the call with a police officer. Uh, and you know, reports are that it's immensely better. It's not perfect. Um, Burnaby has similarly asked for the same thing, and, and Fraser Health has just rejected Burnaby's request, um, and, and it's resourcing. It's it's I don't know whether it's silos, because let's face it, uh, Fraser Health Authority isn't responsible for transporting people to the hospital. That's the provincial health authority under mm-hmm. the BC Ambulance Service. So, you know, it could well be that we're simply no one's budget gets to include this. And as a default, it ends up on municipal budgets uh, in their policing. And and we have police are reporting that every single shift is uh, a preponderance of mental health calls, particularly during COVID. So are you going to push for that in, in Coquitlam then and then find the funds? We have been pushing for it. Unfortunately, it's not a question of the funds. We can't hire a psychiatric nurse. We're not a, a right. health organization. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we really, we've said to Fraser Health, look, we'll dedicate the vehicle. We'll dedicate the police mm-hmm. officer. You just have to, you know, you just have to supply the psych nurse for three shifts a week or something. And um, and we, so far, the answer has 
been well think about it the discouraging answer from out of burnaby which was yeah. the answer is no that that not one a good sign not a good sign so mm-hmm. I, I you know i think the province is making some discussion right now about the police act and, and mental health I, I really hope that out of that discussion comes a better way to respond to health emergencies when they're mental health because this current system, no one would expect, and the police shouldn't be put in a position of having to walk into a situation where a mental health crisis is taking place and try to calm them down when they're wearing guns. Mm-hmm. You breezed over it, but you're, you have a happy ending. Your daughter's doing well uh, at school, my, I think. My daughter's doing well. Uh, she responded well to treatment, and uh, she finished her studies at Douglas College and is now a psychiatric nurse. Oh, that's uh, that's an wor- ending, for sure. <laughs> and works partly with CAR 67. In wow. Surrey, so. Wow. Well, thank, thanks for joining me, Mayor Stewart. I appreciate uh, your personal story on this. My pleasure. Thank you very yeah. much. George Affleck in for Mike Smith today, um, and we're looking at a busy hour and a half left of the show or so. we got a live feed from the Premier in the next hour talking about uh, sick leave. You know, we just heard from Mayor uh, Richard Stewart uh, from Coquitlam and his struggle with his mental health in his own family and, and some and sharing his story about when his own daughter uh, was in crisis and they had to call 911 and uh, instead of, uh, you know, a plainclothes officer coming or a mental health worker, the police came first. And he thinks, you know, they, he talked about how that's a challenge uh, as a parent and as, a, as for kids to have your kid taken away in cuffs in this situation because that's the protocol. Um, and these are the kinds of things a lot of parents deal with uh, and challenges with, uh, with, with your, when you have kids with, uh, with mental health crisis situations and when they go into crisis and you face that kind of, uh, uh, pro- you know, situation, it's, it's something that for a lot of parents is a massive struggle. So what can parents do to watch? And, you know, I think it's what we want to talk a bit about what parents can do to watch for signs of, of mental health crisis in their children and teens. You know, has the pandemic made things worse? And what strategies are there for preventing some of these problems? Joining me is Dr. Rumit Villen. She's a resilience researcher, education expert, speaker, and author. Good morning, Dr. Dr. Villen. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on, and thank you so much for having this important conversation today. Yeah, I'm not sure if uh, you heard Ms. Mayor Stewart's story, but it's quite powerful. And as a parent, I, I, I'm a parent of a child with mental health challenges, so I certainly could relate. Um, haven't faced that kind of specific challenge, but I, you know, you, any parent who has a kid with mental health challenges knows that anything could happen in the future. And admitting your child sometimes has mental health care, you know, mental challenges uh, is one of the hardest things. Can you, what can we do to, for parents to let them know it's okay to have a kid with a mental health challenge? And thank you for that question because it is, right? And this is the reality. And if you add on top of the mental health concerns that were there even before the pandemic, and George, to put that into context, according to Youth Mental Health Canada, there were estimated 1.2 million children and youth that were affected by mental illness, but less than 20% received appropriate treatment. Now, this was before the pandemic. Now, add on top of that what we've experienced over the last 425 days and what youth have experienced, you know, it's just emphasizing the need for the support, but also as parents, and I'm a parent myself, to be aware that our youth, our children may be going through different things, different challenges during this time. And as a parent to know that it's important to normalize the stigma around mental health, to encourage vulnerability, to allow them a safe space to share what it is that they might be experiencing, that is incredibly important. 
one of the biggest things for parents sometimes is to know what signs that their kids are having, you know, that, that, that the mental mental health issue is an issue and, and you almost deny it sometimes for a long time. What should parents be looking for if they, you know, if when their kid might be facing some of these mental health challenges? And here's the thing. There's been, over the last 14 months, limited access to things like sports and recreation, community centers and libraries. Sometimes these are the things that youth and children use as outlets when they may have been experiencing anxiety or stress. And so some signs that parents and guardians want to be on the lookout for, the first one is trouble concentrating. Right? Is, is your child having um, issues concentrating, whether that be on homework or during school hours? A lower attention span. We also want to be mindful of changes in eating habits. Has that increased or has that decreased? Is your child having difficulty sleeping? Are they extremely irritable? And also the persistent feelings of sadness. Because here's the thing, George, just like us adults, youth are also burnt out. Mm-hmm. They, there's been uncertainty. They have the fear of a loss of a loved one, whether it's a grandparent or a guardian. They've been required to do things in new ways, and that's required a lot of mental effort, whether that's learning, interacting with peers, or doing their homework. So youth are burnt out, and for parents, being on a lookout for these signs um, can be helpful. One of the things that I think you, we hear from, and I certainly have experienced this, is there's no magical place to go to find information sometimes. It's like there's not one website mm-hmm. where it tells you everything you need to know, all the symptoms and all the magical websites and all the different facilities and schools. And, you know, why? <laughs> why is there not one place for parents to go? And, and that's the thing. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was that one magic button and there is the manual and all of the answers? Mm-hmm. I hear you on that. What I am grateful and thankful for is that there are resources. And, you know, I was working with youth earlier today um, in grade eight, and we were talking about challenges that they've experienced. And I had to put in there the resources. So I'm going to list a few, if that's okay, sure. um, where parents can go. So we've got the Wellness Together Canada website, uh, wellnesstogether.ca. We've got organizations like BetterHelp.com and Kids Help Phone, hands down, and not just for youth and children, but for adults as well, because we're not immune to this. The pandemic and what we've been experiencing is impacting our mental health. So for youth, they can text CONNECT or TALK to 686868. And for us adults, we can text WELLNESS to 741741. And it's important for me to emphasize that there are mental health services available 24-7. And a huge thank you to those on the other line who are answering these text messages and these phone calls. The public school system obviously faces a brunt of a lot of this um, and, and the programs, there are great programs, they're not everywhere, but they do exist and there's amazing teachers doing amazing work. Mm-hmm. But more, I'm hearing more and more parents are relying on private schools to deal and private programs to deal with this. Should schools or can schools or what can we do about pri- public schools to provide them the tools that they need or the teachers that they need, uh, g- given that this is a growing crisis? And I'm going to start off with this. I firmly believe that everyone is doing the best they can with what they have. And whether we're talking about private schools or public schools, I I believe teachers are trying to do the best that they can with what they have. And I understand if parents are relying on other um, sources or services to help supplement kind of what they feel may be missing. And I think for uh, those that are working in the public school system, looking at different resources that are online, things that they can download. I mean, I have a four and a half year old son 
and I'm downloading different worksheets, whatever I find online as well, to help him um, along the way. And so seeing what resources are available out there, that is what we can do right now. And I understand if parents are looking for additional supports as well, because we want the best for our children. And it's also, George, about keeping them occupied while they're, they are at home as well, right? Um, the other thing I'm going to ch- I'm going to add to this, regardless of if you're a parent, a teacher, a guardian, a caregiver, what's so incredibly important is the daily check-ins. So we can talk about resources all we want, but doing check-ins, we know, yes, checking in. Okay, Dr. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's key. So we're out of time, but that that is key. Checking in, dinner, dinner, talk to your kids, check in with your kids, check in with your teachers, 100%. Thank you very much for for joining me, Dr. Billen. Thank you. Take care, okay? George Affleck for Mike Smith today. In this hour, we'll be going live to the Premier uh, to hear about the three-day sick leave that they're going to be intro- that they introduced this morning at the legislature. Uh, we'll also take your calls at the end of the hour at 604-280-9898, 280-9898. That's at the end of the hour. We're also looking for your, your feedback on our buzz line, 604-331-2899. 331-2899 is our buzz line. It was a busy day across Metro Vancouver as multiple anti-Asian hate rallies were held in different cities and towns. Our show contributor, John Jan, spoke with an organizer who hopes to see more positive steps being taken. John? Good morning, George. Multiple anti-Asian hate rallies took place across Metro Vancouver yesterday to mark the National Day of Action Against Anti-Asian Racism. Doris Ma, the co-founder of the Stand with Asians Coalition, helped organize these rallies, and she joins us now. Doris, appreciate you giving us some time here today. In your opinion, how did these rallies go? Were they successful to you? Oh, the rallies were amazing. So we want to make sure that we're following all the safety protocol. So what we had done was we want to make sure all the participants uh, register. Uh, each team, we have uh, only five team members uh, across the Lower Mainland, uh, from Vancouver, Burnaby, Tri-Cities, uh, to Mission to Hope. Now, it was really interesting because I, I show up at the Broadway commercial SkyTrain station, and I recognize some people come, come along with us. Uh, and they some, they look like they want to join us, and, and they're not part of the people who registered prior to that and what happened was they actually saw on the on the news on vancouver sun on on different news media and they heard about the rallies and they literally just show up with the signs that they made for themselves uh so uh, it was so heartwarming because uh you know we didn't advertise about the rallies but they still want to come and show solidarity and the support and so yeah it was really really amazing the timing of this seems important because, as we know, Bloomberg released a report recently that named Vancouver as the capital of anti-Asian hate crime in all of North America. How important was it to you to get this rally together as a response to that particular finding? Well, absolutely. I think the Bloomberg article came out on Friday. It was very timely. Uh, I organized this uh, movement three and a half weeks ago uh, from my kitchen table when I read to Burnaby Now that there had been a 350% increase, not as high as uh, Vancouver, which is 700% increase. But still, it's, it's really shocking to me. This is happening in the city where I've been living for 30 years, and I've always felt safe. Uh, and and not uh, soon after that, I heard uh, there, there was a woman uh, uh, was harassed, an Asian woman was being harassed at a Safeway, which is five blocks away from my house, where I shopped there 
weekly basis. Uh, and and uh, she was harassed by a white man. And that's when I realized really hit home because this Asian woman could have been me, could have been my mother, it could have been my two daughters. And that's, that's exactly why it stirred up the whole idea of doing the proclamation uh, from Burnaby. And I contacted different cities. And uh, uh, lo and behold, like these cities uh, step up within three and a half weeks. Uh, 30 cities across the country from Victoria, Vancouver, uh, Toronto, and Ottawa, uh, 8.3 million Canadians were behind this movement yesterday to proclaim National Day of Anti-Asian Racism on May 10th. Is there anything you would like to see being done by different levels of government to assist in these movements? I don't know specifically what options are actually available, but something has got to be better than nothing when trying to curb anti-Asian racism. I think there are a lot of things governments need to do. Um, Three levels of government, in fact. I think there's a huge bleeding right now. Uh, especially Vancouver, uh, and it's bleeding uncontrollably. And I think the first thing we have to stop the bleeding is to establish a very comprehensive multilingual reporting system that is not just online, but also establishing a hotline where people is able to just pick up the phone and phone a number where they can report incidents uh, with people who can speak their language, right? So I think that's number one. Because without collecting the data, the government would not know. This is a huge problem. And if the governments do not understand this is a huge problem, they're not going to put money to, for resources and for education. Um, and, and I think, you know, stop the bleeding, uh, get the reporting system right away, immediately. And secondly, and I think education awareness is really, really important. And I feel like right now with all the Stop Asian Hate Movement, a lot of it is being driven by the second and the third generations Asians, uh, young people, and I'm so proud of them. Young people are very educated about this is unacceptable. We have to stand up uh, against this on our behalf of our uh, grandparents and our parents' generation. But I think letting the older generation people understand that this is unacceptable is also very important. Educating the immigrants and the newcomers that this is unacceptable uh, is very, very important as well. And as an immigrant myself for in Canada for 30 years, I'm a first-generation immigrant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never thought this is something I can report because for immigrants, the first important thing for them is survival, right? So if they re- experience racism at work, they're not as likely to report it because they don't want to lose a job. If they lose a job, they're going to lose the livelihood for their family. What is the future for the Stand with Asians Coalition? What is the goal for this movement? Well, definitely uh, the name of our organization is the Coalition. Uh, what I'd like to see is, what I would hope to see is organizations will come alongside with us. I, I really feel like there are different organizations, different groups of people are doing uh, a thing. We're, we're all working toward the same goal. We need to work together. We need to be united together to fight against this. And let alone that we actually have the, the largest Canadian union, the Canadian Labour Congress, 3.3 union workers backing us on this movement yesterday. I think if we all unify together, we have a bigger and louder lobbying voice uh, with the government. And we can lobby the government and say, you know what, enough words 
we need to put into action because we have Canadians backing us on this. And we have an upcoming federal election coming up. People can't really just say, yeah, multiculturalism, we're all for diversity. But let's put action into where your, your words are so that we, we actually see action. And right now, there's a bleeding going on in Vancouver. She is Doris Ma, co-founder with the Stand with Asians Coalition. Thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Thank you very much.